Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. All right, I'm Matt Sawyer here live at the Mississippi Book Festival with author Harrison Scott Key. This wonderful book here in front of us. Thank Thanks you for being for, here. Man, thank you for having me. I love to do an interview with another bald man. You got a beautiful head. <laughs> I was going to say, this makes me feel much better. I'm usually across from people with such wonderful, luscious heads of hair, and it makes me feel insecure. However, I noticed last night after we met, I was like, oh my gosh, I had cargo shorts on and Dude. I can't grow a beard. Dude. <laughs> I won't hold that against you. But I do know who the vice president is. Okay, good. <laughs> Would you vote for Kid Rock uh, for the for for president? I can't. Okay. I then, can't vote for Kid Rock. Then you're a pal in my book. Yeah, my Southeast Michigan folks... Uh, would would disown me for that, you know. That's a that's a controversy up there. I'm sure it is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's so exciting to to have you here. Um, you know, when Ellen told me about you and and this book and went back and read, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be one of the most exciting podcasts I've ever done. Because uh, you're really funny, uh, but you're also deeply Mississippi. Yeah. And even though I'm not from here, I don't even live here, I find myself in front of people that are deeply Mississippi, so connected to this place. And I actually did drive to Rock Hill. Oh, really? Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. I wanted to see what it was like. Yeah. I wanted to see where you grew up because you talk about it and I'm like, okay, but you can never really know until you uh, yeah. put a, a place to the the face. And it just struck me, you know, you have people all over Mississippi, you know, uh, Rolling Fork, obviously Rock mm-hmm. Hill, Greenwood, you know, the Delta, Yazoo City, Coldwater up near Memphis. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few years ago, you said something that really struck me. It was sometimes I drive down to Fondren and look longingly at the building where Tasty Donuts used to be mm-hmm. and pray to Jesus that he will bring it back the way he brought Lazarus back. That's where I really learned all the important lessons of being a writer, like how to smoke and stare at the wall while slowly going mad. So I'm really curious, being from Mississippi, how this place shaped who you are as a as a writer. Ooh, well, um, <clears throat> so I guess on a couple levels. Um, so on the sort of most obvious level, um, you know, Mississippi is a, a very weird place, and I've said that in a thousand different ways over the years, but, um, but writing is one thing that, you know, for as, um, as backwards as many parts of Mississippi can be, uh, writing was some, was never something that people looked down on. Um, and you know, it's, there's the, you know, the tradition of, uh, Faulkner and Welty and Walker Percy and all those folks, but, um, but reading was celebrated and even in church, I mean, that's all you're doing in church really is you're just doing like a grad level, like, you know, textual analysis constantly in Sunday school or in worship, whatever. So I was just always surrounded by books and storytellers. I mean, that's pretty, I guess maybe stereotypical, but like we're, it was a storytelling family. Um, storytelling. So my family was all about, you know, uh, guns and, uh, football and fishing. And at least the men in my family were, uh, farm work, uh, working with your hands, building things. And, uh, of all the stuff that you 
uh, needed to do well as a man, young man in Mississippi. The only thing I was really good at was the storytelling part. So, you know, I, in my first book, The World's Largest Man, I talk about how, you know, <clears throat> you'd go hunting, but in some ways you went hunting just to tell, so you could come back and tell the story. And um, the the best stories were the stories where you did not kill something, where you missed, where you got in a, you know, you, in an accident where you fell out of your deer stand or dropped your gun into the mud or something. And so I would come back from, uh, from hunting with my family and they would all, you know, have killed like 30 things, you know, that we were all going to eat for the next year. And I hadn't killed anything because I was terrible at hunting and really didn't like to shoot. Uh, I just, I didn't like to see animals die. I love to eat animals. Um, but I was not, I didn't have the stomach for it. And I, but I would tell these stories, man. And I, and I could make everybody laugh. And it was the only thing I could do that got praise from the men in my life. And so clearly it stuck. Um, I would also say that uh, Mississippi is, uh, I think, I, I shared this with you last night, that I tell people from outside Mississippi that um, everything beautiful and terrible about America has been perfected here. And that just means it's a, it is a place where stories are just like come up out of the ground constantly. Uh, good stories, sad stories, tragic stories, funny stories. It's It's so rich. It's so thick the air is thick the dirt is thick with stories and so you can't really not be a a storyteller if you grow up here yeah i love i love that and that's going to stick with me what we talked about last night i think ellen when we first met called it a beautiful darkness oh yeah that's good in mississippi yeah and it's what i resonated with when i was in college you know as i was reading all these stories there was just some sort of magnetic magnetic attraction to it all yeah when i finally got here i understood more by meeting the people Mm -hmm. i think there was um there was one way that you said how storytelling affected you from the family that really really stuck with me uh that you learned how to tell one so good that you forgot what day it was (laughs) yeah and that was just like because cause a lot of the people that I've interviewed, it's, oh, my, the best stories were riding in the truck with my father or my grandfather. Yeah. Or they were when you didn't kill something, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm curious. It's really hard to get from that point where you know you're funny, you can write, or you think you can write, to actually turning it into a career. Mm-hmm. So growing up in a place that didn't have, you didn't have writers in your family or artists, uh, how did you say, you know what, I'm just going to do this and have the courage yeah. to go out and... And become a writer. That was much harder. Uh, I mean, I, I grew up, I, I didn't realize I was a writer until I was probably 20 or 21. Um, uh, I just, I was always writing constantly and I loved, uh, you know, I loved school. I loved uh, writing essays. I loved doing research. I wrote love letters. I wrote so many love letters to so many women. If you're listening, I'm still waiting on your reply. Um, in class, notes in class. I, ha- mm-hmm. I was talking to a friend I went to, to um, junior high with long, long time ago. And she now lives like in Alaska or something. And we were just texting. And, um, and she said, you, you, she said, she was telling me that I used to, I wrote these comics, like a, like a little like page or two of, uh, of a comic, like with cells. And I would have like dialogue and, uh, it was like me talking to her. I don't remember doing that at all, but I was constantly writing and using language. And um, what that me, what that meant in my family, if you could write and talk, uh, that that really meant either law school or seminary. 
or a Bible college, and you were either going to be a, a preacher or a lawyer. Uh, and that's really, those were really my only options that I, that were sort of put to me. Um, I knew I was too sacrilegious to be a pastor. Um, I had so many dark thoughts during sermons. Uh, I wanted always, you know, I used to, as, as I say in, in, uh, how to stay married, I used to bring, uh, books to church because the sermons were so boring and Mm -hmm. it was the same thing over and over again. And so I would, I had my Bible, but I'd put my like Pulp Fiction novel, you know, in the, in the Bible and I would get so much trouble for that. But I had, I just, I, I could, I knew I couldn't be a, a preacher, um, and the thought of wearing, uh, uh, of having to like tuck in my shirt and wear a belt every day felt like hell. I um, so re- I resonate with that. I I, I can't stand it. when people. When I went to Catholic school for eleven years, I they said wear a belt, and I just said no every day. No, I was I, like, give me as many demerits and Saturday detentions no. you want. I am not wearing it. So I, I get that. It's too many rules. I lost a belt uh, about ten years ago. And uh, I've never replaced it. Um, I get, I mean, everybody, I'm like, if my pants stay up, do you, do you need it? Thank you. Yeah. I don't understand. I've got a lot of issues with that. Anyway, that's why I didn't go into, uh, into uh, religion or politics or law. And um, I was more of a performer. uh, And so I studied, I thought I was supposed to be an actor. And I'll say this, I just, my, my dad was a football coach and, uh, he sold asphalt and, uh, he was just sort of stereotypical, like white Mississippi man. Um, but he never discouraged me from any of my choices, uh, which says a lot because there are people much more progressive and intelligent and educated than my father who do discourage their kids from, from doing things that are, uh, imaginative or creative or just interesting or unorthodox. Um, but neither he nor my mom discouraged me and it took so I, I studied acting and I tried to be an actor and it was okay but I, I, I realized that there was something wrong with my brain and I could not pretend to be anyone but me so like I would just be playing versions of myself whether it was Shakespeare or some like modern tragedy uh, and that's not good for acting like you're supposed to be uh, be like other people um, and I couldn't do it. I could not get out of my own head. <clears throat> and so I started writing monologues for auditions. This was back in the nineties. Uh, I wrote my own monologues cause back then the internet was still sort of like the wild west. There wasn't a lot of content on it. Google didn't even exist yet. And so you couldn't just go find great monologues on the internet. Um, so I had to write them and I so enjoyed writing the monologues. Um, that, that slowly just, I just took away the stage directions and it became just stories. And in a way, all of my books are just long, really long audition monologues (laughs) in a way. So that's how I got into prose writing. And it took a long, long time. I was probably in my, I was 38 before I published a book. So from the age 20 to age 38, that's 18 years of sort of wandering in the wilderness, trying to figure out what do I write about? Um, Do I write novels? Do I write memoir? I did not want to write some sad little sad, you know, I love slash hate my dad memoir. Like, you know, they say men write memoirs uh, about um, seeking and pursuing their fathers. And typically uh, women write memoirs about escaping their mothers, Mm. which is a fascinating 
uh, point. It's not always it's not always exactly like that, but um, but you do see that as a common theme in people's stories. They want their uh, they want to escape their mothers and they want to know their fathers. And I did not want to do that. And then I just realized. So I'll end my answer with this. I was struggling. I was in my early thirties. What am I supposed to write? I knew I was a writer. Uh, I knew I wanted to tell stories. And a friend uh, who I'd gone to college with uh, at Bellhaven here in Jackson. Um, I was talking to her on the phone and I was like, I just don't know what to write. And she goes, as long as whatever you write is as funny as the stories you used to tell about your dad, then you, then it'll be awesome. And I, and then just a light bulb went off. I had been such an idiot about it. And I was like, Oh, I was like, I need to write these funny stories about my dad. Cause if it's a, if a story, and this is just a little tidbit for any writers listening out there, if there is a story that you always tell, at parties or sitting around a campfire, like a, a story from something that happened long ago. If, and you, you're not sure why you tell it, but there's something in that story that is true that your unconscious, your id, your soul knows is true, even if the front of your brain doesn't. It just thinks it's a funny story. And that's so that's how I started. And that's how I got into memoir and really discovering like, oh, all these funny stories aren't just funny. There's something real there and scary and sad and uh, heroic and uh, cosmic happening in all these stories, too. Gosh, I love that perspective. First of all, it's like you have to when people tell you something like your friend, listen, right? Yes. When they say, hey, as long as it's like the stories used to tell and it's that funny, then that's something you can write about. Yeah. You know, I feel like a lot of writers, really just creative people in general, um, you know, uh, they a lot of them say you don't have to be like intentionally creative, right? It's not like a contrived thing. Um, is that anybody can be an artist technically or a writer, but I think it's the honesty that I really connect with with any mm-hmm. writers. And, and with you, your books are so lovingly honest mm-hmm. and funny. <laughs> um, and, and it's a hard thing to do with really difficult topics, but, but yeah. you've kind of mastered it. But one thing that stuck out with, with what you were saying was you didn't feel like you could become a, a preacher, right? You didn't mm-hmm. want to go to seminary. And yet... You're informed a lot by your experiences in church. Yeah, yeah. So in your your most recent book, How to Stay Married, the thing that stuck with me is when you went back to the Bible. I mean, I don't know many people that have read the Bible in full, mm-hmm. let alone at this this like darkest hour <laughs> to look for yeah. uh, uh, consolation or or advice in some way. And I think you said something like most of the the characters in in the Bible. Um, are like, you know, not, they're not perfect people. They're terrible right? people. And so tell me about why you went back to the Bible, even though you say, okay, you're too sacrilegious to be. Well, when you, when you are in the, you know, eighth or ninth level of hell and, uh, you can, you can get bitter and give up and, um, and sort of wallow in hell. Uh, what that means when, when your marriage is dissolving and your wife is in love with your neighbor, uh, what that means is maybe you just go on a bender to Vegas, you know, you start dating, uh, strippers or something. I don't know. I've I've seen a lot of that happen. Uh, you can either go that way, uh, which kind of punishes yourself and everybody around you, or, um, you can look for wisdom. 
And uh, I looked for wisdom everywhere, man. I, 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 I looked. I, I rewatched Mad Men trying to understand. I'm like, because I'm like, is my wife Don Draper? You know, like who? Like so, trying to understand what uh, that character had to say to me. Uh, I read really great books like uh, Fire Sermon by Jamie Quattro and Anna Karenina and all these great novels that talk about infidelity and broken marriages and how it happens. I was looking for, I was trying to understand every, anything I could to climb out of this hell that I was in and maybe climb out with my wife or find my wife somewhere in that labyrinth of hell and my children and get us all out together. And so having been raised in the church, I knew like, and I mean, I, I studied theology in college. I've written a lot about theology and philosophy as it relates to the creative life. So I had some experience with it, but um, but it, but I really had not con- seriously looked at the Bible as something that might help me right where I am right now. And so I I read it just like a novel. I did not. I didn't go to it going like. All right, I'm going to look for something in Leviticus that's going to tell me what to do tomorrow. It's more of like, who am I? Who is my wife? Like, what is, what is my duty in this life right now to myself and to all the people around me and to my family and to my wife, wh- whom I wanted to hate uh, for so many times throughout this book, the story of the book. But I, I go to the Bible and I'm just reading it and I'm like, all right, I I threw away. I took all the sort of uh, perceptions and interpretations from a lifetime in the church. And I just kind of put them in a little basket off to the side. And I was like, all right. And I, you know, so for example, like reading the story of Jacob, uh, who like wrestles with God, like that's weird. Um, if I woke up and told my parents, you know, if I raised my hand in Sunday school and said that I was wrestling with God and, you know, grabbed him by the balls, like, I mean, I'd probably get in trouble. Right. But like, it's happening right here in the Bible. And so I was fascinated with, I had so many revelations, uh, about as reading it that you don't, I just never heard in church because there's too much at stake. It's all about how to behave. Like the Bible is, it's not, the Bible is not a manual for, uh, how to behave. It's a man, it is a manual trying to capture the absolute chaotic, uh, beautiful, terrible comedy of human life. It's so much more than a rule book. And yeah, there are things in there like, you know, don't do this, do that. And some of those are good. Like, you know, I don't know, don't, don't drown somebody when you're mad at them. Like that's, that's good advice. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't murder. That's great advice. And that, so that is a, I'm not saying there aren't discrete lines in there that aren't interesting and have absolute application to how a human being should be, but there, it's so much more than that. And it, it blew my mind. And I think it kind of readied me for the lap, for the great sort of final battle of the book in a way. You know, it's interesting you say about that, it not being a rule book and it's just, you know, the story of this chaos that's reflected in your own book. Mm-hmm. As you said, this is not a the, the title. How to stay married is you're not trying to tell people. Oh, that's deep. I, t- I get what you're saying. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, it's not a self help book, but it's it's much more complicated. And not neither is the Bible. And the yeah. thing I always struggled with with church is I was like, stop using this to tell me what to do all the time, right? Yeah. Like there should be an exploration of the stories. And to me, you know, I don't even know how to get married, let alone stay married. <laughs> um, but I'd shared this with so many of my friends across the country and. I, you know, I was even having a group chat with my friends in Ann Arbor, Detroit, um, about the lessons that they learn and just the different things you can take from this book. So yeah. I think it's really interesting awesome. that you mirror that, hey, it's it's chaos. I think one of them said, um, 
I put in all caps chads for some reason. He's like, is there any, uh, is it a coincidence that it's one letter away from chaos? <laughs> oh, that's good. And uh, yeah, so I thought that was funny. But yeah, and, and there was a part in this book that really stuck with me as well. Um, speaking of how to, I guess, behave godly or as people profess to, to do in the church, sometimes how that can be hypocritical mm-hmm. um, when it comes time to, to actually act in the ways of being yeah. godly. Excommunication. Yeah. And shaming people who already are ashamed. Yeah. Can you talk about what you learned through that process of going to people that you thought would be helpful in your situation, like when you went yeah. to the church and the, do you want us to, to kick her out, right? Yeah. And and then who came in and showed you the way? Yeah, it's um, it was difficult. So I assume when I found out my wife was having an affair and she said she wanted a divorce, she was in love with our neighbor and they were going to get married and live happily ever after. Um I didn't know what to do, who to turn to. I, I, I was not definitely not going to storm out and leave. This was my home. Um, and so I'm not leaving, but I needed, I, I needed ideas. I needed help and on every level. Uh, and so I go uh, naturally to, uh, to a, a spiritual person who, who is there, uh, you would guess for times like this, uh, a very wise man, um, uh, at the church we were going to at the time, a very fatherly man and really the kind of person you need, you need to talk to in a situation like this. And I just, you know, sort of collapsed on his couch in his office at, at the church and told him everything. And he was naturally very apologetic and sad and we prayed and I just didn't know what to do. And, and also all that was good. And, and so I, I basically said like, well, what do I do? And, you know, he said, well, basically you tell her to stop it. And if she doesn't, then then we excommunicate her, cut her off. Like it was just so cut and dry. And I, and like, in a sense, yes, like there's a point at which you have to say, all right, we can't be married anymore. And so we have to get divorced and, you know, bye. Like I totally get it. And she probably would have had to leave that church and maybe I would have stayed at that church. I don't know. So there, obviously there are definitely definite times for uh, exile um, for both both people in a broken marriage, but the way he said it was so uh, cold and matter of fact, there was no, there was not even a, a pause for a moment of, um, I wonder what it's like to be her. Why would she do this? Um, it was assumed because I hadn't had an affair and was not uh, obviously not an alcoholic or an addict or abusive in any uh, obvious way that clearly I was not at fault. So I was a good person and she was a bad person. And therefore we say, stop being bad. And then if she doesn't, it's a, bye, you're fired. You get, you leave this church, you, whatever you get out. And I am not generally a kind person. Uh, I get angry when people cut me off on, you know, the street. I, uh, I jockey for the best lane at the grocery store, like every other human on the planet. Um, but it just, it felt like, I was like, dude, I feel like if we say stop it, maybe that's not going to work. Maybe it's more like, hey, uh, why did this happen? Okay, so he says that, and I'm like, that didn't feel right. And I, this man is much more theologically intelligent and educated than I am, and obviously had seen other people on his office couch saying the same thing. But I said, I said, dude, I do not think that's maybe the way to go yet. Maybe we're not. Maybe that's maybe that's step ten, but we're at step one. So, uh, without giving away too many details, some years later, uh, 
not not that many years later um well right after that i talked to my friends and one of my friends said you know uh, they didn't say let's judge your wife of course it's bad like my wife knew it was bad Obviously. to have an affair grew <laughs> you know of course they said um are you going to fight for her? and that completely changed everything and i was like oh uh the first option from the pastor was, uh, uh, let's fight her and we'll fight the evil and then we can win. And my friends say, are you going to fight for her? And that changed my perspective on everything. And she was no longer somebody to hate. And of course I was so angry. Of course I had the hatred in my heart, but, um, to fight for her. And so then we end up leaving that church and, and another pastor sits with her, a, a younger guy, a little more, uh, iconoclastic um but a really nice guy has become a best friend he sat with her and did not judge her he just said i said well what did you what did y'all talk about when you and he goes i just asked her what it was like to be her mm-hmm. and then i asked her what it was like to be married to you and as i say in the book i was like that proud that was what did what did she say he was like yeah that it's not fun to be married to you you don't want to know <laughs> but what that did is uh the the um eschewing judgment in favor of just listening like some things are wrong is it wrong to lie and betray your spouse yes she didn't need anybody to tell her that was wrong she knew that was wrong but to 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 open things up for a dialogue and say how are you what's it like to be you to talk about your life right now absolutely opened up all the windows in the house to let light in. And I, without that mercy expressed from this guy, whose name was Soren, uh, and other people at our church who showed me like, oh, this is how you love. This is probably how you get out of hell. You don't get out of hell by uh, fighting with the people who dragged you into hell. You get out of hell by looking up to, uh, to where you, how you fell in and trying to understand it and, and getting back up there. Yeah. And I, I thought, you know, that, that moment where it could have been excommunication or mercy, love. I mean, it's an open invitation. Now, maybe we can heal together. Maybe not. But the point is, if you just cut somebody off, then there's no chance for that to be healed. No. And you, the thing that you did, and, and I think a lot of people can learn from it, is use your imagination about someone else's behavior. Yeah. Don't just determine this is why it's happening, right? Ask questions. Yeah. Listen. But the, the biggest thing I took away from this book is, you know, you talk about the miracle, but love is running toward each other. Mm-hmm. And that to me is, is the takeaway. And it doesn't even have to do with marriage. It's anything in your life. If you want someone to, to feel loved, you can't just run away from them. Yeah. You have to go toward them in those moments where it, it seems easier to just leave. Oh, it all, and it does. Uh, it's easier to run away. Um, dealing with uh, running toward people, helping people, uh, understanding people is so much harder. It takes so much more work. Everybody's so busy. We don't have time for that. Um, you know, we've got um, something very uh, challenging is happening in our church community right now, um, privately, like not nothing with the church, but with with a family in the church. And it's the kind of thing that would not at, at my previous churches I've belonged to, that wouldn't have even been talked about. It would be this, it's this quiet thing happening behind closed doors. Nobody has to know about it. So everything else, everything in the church can seem perfect. But um, I have seen uh, my wife and others running to this couple to help, to serve, to take their dogs walking, to bring them food, um, 
And it's hard. And these people did not want to be helped. They wanted everything to stay quiet and behind mm-hmm. closed doors. And to see the mercy that our church family has shown to this one family in, in what they're going through, uh, to see how it has opened every, like, every day I'd come home from work and my wife would be crying because she's been on the phone with somebody talking about this thing and what to do. Uh, running toward people is a lot more work. Uh, it is harder because then you have to really see people and it's so hard, man, when you see people, cause then you see yourself and man, it's rough. So yeah, it's, it's a lot more work. I mean, that's why, you know, somebody, I was reading a review of my book on Goodreads and the guy was, he was, it was awful. Uh, <laughs> Reading these is so awful, but he he said he was uh, he gave the book four stars, which is great. But then he complained that I said, you know, that like what you know what marriage is about in the end is love, and he like said he groaned when he read that because like that's what everybody says, and I'm like, well, I think maybe we keep saying that because it's so hard to get your head around. Like, what does it mean? Mm. Like for me, like love means um, handing handing my wife uh the kryptonite that can kill me and just and giving it to her that's love right um love is saying here's how i hurt you here and and giving the gun to your partner it's scary that's dude that's that's scary and hard to do man because uh you get vulnerable and then people can attack you when you're vulnerable right yep. you're exposed and uh, we're also we're so fearful, dude. I mean, I I'm not a Buddhist, but uh, but I dig the Buddha, and um, that brother, man, the stuff that um, the the idea of sort of like I feel like Buddhism captures how um, busy and chaotic and sort of effed up the human animal is, and how it's like how it's constantly constantly creating making building doing fighting uh it's it's um it's kind of a nightmare to be a human and that's what i love about buddhism (laughs) it kind of it says it's kind of a nightmare to be a human isn't it Mm -hmm. so like like just stop like stop i think about like stuff you know i want to i want a new house stuff i don't like about my my house and i need a new house and i'm just like the the crave and the hunger and of course like it's good to build things and make things and want new things human human beings are the most interesting creatures on earth because we can't we can't stop creating and making and building and thinking um but it can also be so destructive so i've i've found uh i found a lot of wisdom uh in buddhism and even like i've been reading like confucianism and uh, there's there's so much wisdom out there. Still and, searching, and man. Still like always searching. And I'm like every day. I'm like, wow. I am a terrible person. Almost every day, I find something terrible about myself, and uh, and hope that maybe I can be slightly less terrible by the end of the day. But I think that's a healthy place to be. You know, if we can admit, be vulnerable about our our own issues. You know, it's a. You said something that reminded me of the. You know, just our nature is that we have infinite capacity for self-improvement yeah and that is yes. how much of how many of us take advantage of that yeah that gift that we have Ooh. compared to other animals is that we can endlessly improve and a lot of us just stop because we're not willing to to look at ourselves and say man what is my role in this really terrible situation even if i didn't do the the bad thing that everybody sees right. you know and uh, yeah. yeah, I think that that was a really important point is looking at yourself even when you're hurt because two hurt people, right, coming together through love. I mean, that's 
that's kind of the name of the game is that you're in it together mm-hmm. and you're going to get through it together. Um, the last thing that, that I really would, would just like to, to touch on here is um, that, you know, throughout this story, there was the notion of community. And I think there's a lie that marriage is just between two people. Yeah. Sometimes, though, that's the problem is that we don't look for those sources of wisdom. Um, but as, as you reflect on that really hectic time, to share some of the wisdom you learned about community and what it means to heal together and not just with the person you're married yeah, to. Yeah, it's definitely, um, you definitely need other people to stay married. Um, hopefully not other people in your marriage, um, but but outside no love triangles we don't want love triangles but you do need people um you need you need other people um for uh you um i mean in in a real practical sense you need friends outside of your marriage uh just to uh somebody else to to talk to and annoy like if you if you have uh, you can like everybody has a certain amount of annoyingness that they have to get out and if you if you're pouring it all in your spouse it's not fair you need other people you can uh you can annoy um i got really good advice from my community in the midst of this uh one thing that um my best friend said who's uh he's a he's a pastor this is sore and the guy I was talking about earlier uh he said um when i was at like when my wife had just left i was like what do i do and he said don't have sex with your secretary <laughs> um and I was like, I don't have, I don't have a secretary. And he goes, good. Don't have sex with anybody's secretary. Uh, what he's saying is like, just you are going to want and need and crave affection, mm-hmm. being deprived of it. Just don't like let let us give that to you, man. Like let us uh, sit with you and and drink a beer with you. And so they invited me over. They they I, another buddy. Um, who is a, a giant uh, Ugandan basketball coach slash writer. Uh, I have very weird friends. Um, he put me on like his speed dial and he was like, he's like, man, if you feel like you are going to hurt yourself, call me. And I was like, dude, my ego is too big to want to commit suicide. <laughs> I was like, I, I wish it might be nice to want to commit suicide sometimes, but I, I don't think I'm going to hurt myself. He goes, if you find yourself doing anything that might be destructive, call me. So now his, so my number is his speed dial. So when he does a, a butt dial, it's oh, always man. me. But what's so awesome about it is every time I get a butt dial, I get so many from him. His name is Jason. I get so many from him that we don't. He doesn't even have to text and say, I'm sorry. Like, it's yeah. just understood. <laughs> but every time I get one, it reminds me that I'm number one on his call list. And that gives me strength. That, and 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 he'll, he'll butt dial me, and now I'll text back, I love you, man. You know, he'll text back, I know. And that's what community is. Community is people, when everybody knew that my wife had moved out and I was now a single parent, they brought food and they left it on my front porch and they didn't ask if they could. They just left it and they said, I left some food. And they would take a photo like they were, a, you know, an Amazon delivery person. They'd take a photo and send it to me and be like, please get this food because if you don't, the raccoons will be eating it very soon. Or they would leave a bottle of Jameson on my front porch and say, there's a bottle on your front porch. If you would like somebody to drink it with, text me. But they didn't say, what can I do to help? They just moved in. And people moving towards you with love, knowing that you're suffering, gives you strength that is cosmic. It's not your own strength. I felt capable of doing 
what would have otherwise felt impossible things like forgiveness, like uh, reconciliation with my wife, loving my children in a better way, becoming a better friend, a better father. I felt I became able to do these things that felt impossible, not through my strength, but through the strength of these people around me. Um, and people talk about the love of God. That's that's what they're talking about. Wow. It makes you really feel like you can do anything. Yeah. So that's, well, it's a wonderful book. I'm really grateful to have met you and to have read it. And uh, I'll keep I'll keep putting it out there as much as I can, because I Thank think there's you. so much to learn from it. And uh, have a fun time at the, the rest of the I, festival. I love this festival, man. It is. I, I know I'm from Mississippi, so I'm biased. But the Mississippi Book Festival is easily my favorite festival in the country. It is has the best of all worlds. So many great writers, including me. Um, that was a joke. I'm sorry. Um, so many amazing writers, and yet it's very personal. It's not. It does. It's not sprawling over like a ten mi- ten square mile area. It's intimate, but it's huge. I love this festival, and I thank you for interviewing me. I want to thank Ellen and all the volunteers. Shouts out, Ellen. Love being here. It's been awesome. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks. Bright on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.